good to see some faces out there, not just that little red dot in front of me. <laughs> well, now is the time in the service where we turn directly to God's speech. Before we consider God's word, before we chew on it and ingest it and allow it to transform us, let us pray. Your word, O Lord, is sweeter than honey, straight from the honeycomb. And yet, like John in the book of Revelation, sometimes we consume your word and it turns our stomach sour. We give you permission today, Lord, to do whatever you'd like with your word within us. If you want to make it sweet to us, make it sweet and bring all the comfort that we need through your word. But if our stomachs must become bitter before we become better, May your word do that too. Lord, we're open right now to your work among us. Use your word for your purposes this morning. We trust you to do what's best. We trust you because of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. What's it going to cost me? <laughs> That's a question on every Dutch person's mind, isn't it? <laughs> If you didn't know, this local church was established by Dutch immigrants, and that was their question. What's it going to cost me? Well, that sure is nice, but what's it going to cost? I like that very much, but what's it going to cost? But I'm not here to talk about money this morning. I'm here to talk about something of vastly greater importance. I'm here to talk about discipleship. Discipleship to Jesus. A disciple, as you may recall, is a student. Jesus is our teacher, and we are his students. As his students, enrolled in the classroom of Jesus, we are learning to live and love like him. So what does it cost to be a student of Jesus? What's the enrollment fee? What's a semester's tuition cost? What's it going to cost to be a student, a disciple of Jesus? Or, if you prefer, we can say that a disciple is an apprentice. Say you want to become an electrician. You first have to become an apprentice. That is, you have to learn the trade from a master electrician. It takes time and energy, and you better count the cost before you decide this is what you want to do with your life. If you decide to move forward, you better pay close attention to everything the master teaches you or you might end up on the wrong end of an electric current, which will put you on the wrong end of your body. <laughs> a disciple is like that. A disciple of Jesus is an apprentice of Jesus. If you want to become skilled in life and in love, you must become an apprentice of the Master Jesus. But it's going to come at a cost. And Jesus himself tells us to count the cost before moving any further in a life of discipleship to him. No one plans to build a new house, Jesus taught, without first sitting down to, to count the cost so that you know whether you can afford to finish it or not. If you only get the foundation laid and then run out of money, you're going to look pretty foolish. That's the illustration Jesus uses about counting the cost but he's really talking about discipleship. So back to the question every 
Dutch person asks when faced with any expenditure, what's it going to cost? What's it going to cost to follow Jesus? What's it going to cost to truly become his disciple, his student, his apprentice? What's it going to cost poor folks like you and me to learn how to imitate Jesus in his life and in his love while the world goes on hating for any and every difference that can be found among us? What's it going to cost? Today, Jesus teaches about the costs of discipleship. The text is Luke 9, starting with verse 51. One more thing you should know before we read it. You should know that this verse makes a critical turn in the Gospel of Luke. As we will soon read in this text, Jesus turns his face to Jerusalem. This turn to Jerusalem marks a critical shift in his ministry. Before this turn, Jesus has been doing ministry anywhere and everywhere throughout Israel. But this turn means he will now zero in on a single task in Jerusalem. What is that task? What is he going to accomplish in Jerusalem? Elijah and Moses talked about this last week, if you were with us last week. They said that this single task Jesus was to accomplish in Jerusalem was his exodus. That's what Jesus will accomplish in Jerusalem, his exodus. That's what we learned last week. Here in Jerusalem, Jesus will accomplish his work of liberation and freedom. He will set us free from our sin so that we can embrace and be embraced by God. But it will come at a great cost. For today, Jesus turns his face to Jerusalem where he will suffer and die. Now, don't miss what this means for you and me as we think about following this Jesus. Jesus' turn to Jerusalem confronts us with a choice. Will we follow him even on the road to Jerusalem? Or will we take what we've liked from Jesus' ministry thus far and leave behind what we don't? Will we follow Jesus whatever the cost, or will we follow Jesus only when the price is right? The text is Luke 9, verse 51. Hear the word of the Lord. As the time approached when Jesus was to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers on ahead of him. Along the way, they entered a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival, but the Samaritan villagers refused to welcome him because he was determined to go to Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? But Jesus turned and spoke sternly to him, and they went on to another village. As Jesus and his disciples traveled along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens, the birds in the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Then Jesus said to someone else, Follow me. He replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, 
let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and spread the news of God's kingdom. Someone else said to Jesus, a third person, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say goodbye to, my, to those in my house. Jesus said to him, no one puts a hand on the plow. No one who puts a hand on the plow and looks back is fit for God's kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. The beginning of Jesus' ministry begins with excitement. Almost everyone gets excited and feels energized when Jesus' renewal movement begins. That's why crowds formed wherever he traveled in the early days of his ministry. We, too, eagerly joined the crowds as we imagine ourselves as characters in the Gospels. We joined the crowds for two reasons. One, we noticed something remarkable about Jesus. And two, crowds make us feel special, like we're part of something big and important. It was exciting in the early days of Jesus' ministry. And the crowds grew, and we were happy to be counted among them. Eugene Peterson goes so far as to say this about crowds. He says, Classically, there are three ways in which humans try to find transcendence. Religious meaning apart from God, as revealed through the cross of Christ. Three ways, okay, we try to find religious meaning apart from God. Peterson says, one, through the ecstasy of drugs and alcohol. Two, through the ecstasy of recreational sex. And three, through the ecstasy of crowds. Then he says, Church leaders frequently warn against the drugs and the sex, but at least in America, almost never against the crowds. Reread the Gospels and think about that. But with the crowds we go, gathering around Jesus in his early years of ministry. And with the crowds we lean in and listen closely as Jesus brilliantly lectures in Galilee with the crowds, we watch in astonishment as Jesus speaks authoritative truth to those in authority. His healings and his miracles thrill us along with the crowds, and we all respond with a standing ovation. This is what happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We loved him along with the rest of the crowds. But then Jesus turns his face to Jerusalem, and everything changes. Then Jesus rides the road marked with suffering, and the crowds disperse. Then Jesus marches toward his crucifixion and death, and the excitement of the crowds die with him. Jesus' turn to Jerusalem is like fire in the auditorium. The crowds scramble on out and move on to the next big thing in town, but that thing is no longer Jesus. Jesus' turn confronts us with a choice, too. Will we leave with the crowds, chasing whatever makes us feel special and important, like we're part of something big? Or will we follow Jesus, even to Jerusalem? My friends, today is the day of reckoning. It's tax time for our souls. It's time to count the cost of following Jesus and the cost of not following him. What's it going to cost you to follow him? Not only when everyone's applauding, but also when everyone is booing. What's it going to cost you to follow him when most have abandoned him and others curse him, shouting, crucify him, crucify him? 
What's it going to cost? Listen to the master himself as he interacts with three individuals in our scripture text for today. Listen to the master and proceed with caution. Person number one. The first person in our text says to Jesus while he's walking along the road to Jerusalem, I will follow you wherever you go. You have to to love the young lad's eagerness, but Jesus snuffs out, smells out his youthful ignorance. Foxes have dens and birds in the sky have nests, but you'd have an easier time following them wherever they go, for the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, are you prepared to drink the cup that I drink? That's what Jesus will later ask. James and John, the two that in our passage wanted to uh, throw down fire on the Samaritans. Are you prepared to drink the cup that I drink? I think that's the sentiment here as well. Son of man has no place to lay his head. Are you and I, are we prepared to drink the cup of suffering? Are we prepared to endure the rage of those who oppose Jesus? Are we prepared to surrender our self-interested goals and plans for God's agenda? Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go, wherever you want to take me in life. Jesus responds, do you know what it's going to cost you? It's as if Jesus wants to make clear to this zealous potential disciple what exactly it means to be a disciple I'm on the road to Jerusalem where I will be rejected. And on any given night, I don't know if I'll have a roof over my head. Are you ready to be rejected? Are you ready to sleep on the streets for my sake? Or perhaps less extreme, but no less difficult. Are you ready to sacrifice your paycheck, or at least a costly part of it, for the sake of my kingdom? Do you know what it costs to follow me? Jesus does not turn away this young lad, but he wants him to know what he's getting himself into here. This is no cakewalk, this thing called discipleship to Jesus. It is no cakewalk. It is an adventure worthy of your life, but it's your life that it will cost. So tell me, Jesus asks us, will you follow me? The second person that Jesus talks to about the costs of discipleship, he's approached, to by, he's approached by Jesus himself. So while the first person reaches out to Jesus eagerly, the second, we get this sense, is just minding his own business when Jesus comes right up to him and asks, follow me. Depending on the tone of voice used here, this is either a command or an invitation. We can't be sure. But the point is the same. Here is the master, Jesus. And while he's on the road marked with suffering, he invites this person to become his apprentice. I want you to see the amazing grace in this invitation. Because it's usually the other way around. Someone who wants to be an electrician first must enroll in a program and apply to be trained by a master electrician. Same thing for first century disciples. They had to prove first their worthiness. 
their capabilities to a rabbi before the rabbi would consider teaching them and taking them on as their disciple. But here is the master, Jesus, inviting this student to take his course on life. Here is the master, Jesus, inviting the person who never even applied to accept the job of discipleship, and all of this without even reviewing his resume. And here is where Jesus invites us to. Regardless of race, class, gender, or any other human condition, here is where Jesus invites us. Regardless of what we've done in the past, and regardless of what we have not yet been able to accomplish, here is where the Master Jesus invites us with those same clear and compelling words, follow me. The second person in Luke's account, he responds with what we think is a reasonable request. I'm sure he thought it was a reasonable request as well. Lord, first let me go and bury my father. It's a fine thing to do in any other circumstance. It's obedience to God's law. Honor your father and mother. In any other circumstance, it is a very honorable thing indeed to attend properly to the burial of one's parents. But in this circumstance, and this sounds harsh, but in this circumstance, it's an excuse. And Jesus snuffs it out. Let the dead bury their own dead, Jesus replies. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. In other words, discipleship cannot be delayed. Discipleship is a ship that is about to sail. It's a flight that is about to depart. There's no late boarding on Holy Spirit airlines. So either get on board now or watch from the terminal as others take flight. That's the message to person number two. And then comes person number three. I get the sense, I could be wrong, but I get the sense that person number three overheard Jesus' conversation with person number two. And so he's kind of wanting to impress Jesus. That's, that's my imagination, at least. So with a bit of judgment at person number two's ignorance, person number three raises his hand and boldly declares to Jesus, I will follow you, Lord. I can even imagine him breaking into his favorite Caleb song, where you go, I'll go, where you stay, I'll stay, when you move, I'll move, I will follow. But then he remembers his family back home. So he asks Jesus a reasonable request, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say goodbye to those in my house. But as before, so again, Jesus interprets the reason as an excuse. The desire to delay discipleship reveals an ignorance of what discipleship really is. So Jesus replies to the man's request with a metaphor that gets you thinking. He says, No one who puts a hand on the plow and looks back is fit for God's kingdom. No one who puts a hand on the plow and looks back is fit for God's kingdom. 
Eugene Peterson helps us make sense of this metaphor with his paraphrase in, in the Message Bible. Listen to his translation of this interaction with person number three. It says, Then another said, I'm ready to follow you, Master, but first excuse me while I get things straightened out at home. Jesus said, No procrastination, no backward looks. You can't put God's kingdom off till tomorrow. Seize the day. Jesus' response here reminds me of Lot's wife in Genesis 19. Are you familiar with this strange story? The city of Sodom is about to be destroyed. That was their home. Lot and his wife and Uncle Abraham, you know, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So Lot's wife, together with Lot and Uncle Abraham, they're in the process of being saved by God from this destruction from the destruction of Sodom, their former home. But while being led by God's hand to safety, what does Lot's wife do? She looks back longingly at the city. She nurtures the nostalgia of the life that was, unprepared to face the life that will be. And the result of such nostalgia is this. She's frozen in time and rendered useless. Or in the Bible's own words, she's turned into a pillar of salt. This, my friends, is what happens when we fail to count costs. And this, my friends, is what we might call the cost of non-discipleship. The cost of non-discipleship. You see, everything has a cost. Following Jesus is an adventure worthy of your life, but it will cost you your life. Your time, talents, and treasures it will cost. Your power, privilege, and wealth it will cost. Your desire to control and manage your own life, that too is a high expense for the one who truly becomes Jesus' disciple. But know this, there is also a high cost for not following Jesus. The late Dallas Willard first coined the phrase, the cost of non-discipleship. And here's what he says about it. Here's what not being a disciple of Jesus costs. Non-discipleship costs abiding peace. It costs a life penetrated throughout by love. Non-discipleship costs faith that sees everything in the light of God's overriding governance for good. Non-discipleship costs hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances. It costs the power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. That's what non-discipleship costs. In short, he says, it costs exactly that abundance of life Jesus said he came to bring. So what's it going to cost you? On the one hand, Following Jesus, and I mean really following him, not just going to church, it will cost you the life you thought you could manage on your own. Following Jesus will cost you and I the pride and satisfaction of always being right. Following Jesus will cost you comfort, convenience, and control. 
That's what it will cost to follow Jesus, along with other things, all the way to Jerusalem. But on the other hand, not following Jesus all the way to Jerusalem will cost you your life in a different way. Peace, peace will slip through your fingers even as you try to grasp it. Faith will seem more like a chore than a gift. Hope will be replaced by positive thinking. You will devise various therapeutic strategies to help you feel a little better, even while you deny the reality of pain and death. Love, love will turn inward, and you will find yourself unknown and alone. That's the cost of not following Jesus. Each of us is like the second person in our text for today, whom Jesus approaches with grace while he's on the road to Jerusalem. He extends his hand and says to us, follow me. It's time for us to count the cost and go all in. In the name of the Father who loves us no matter what, in the name of the Son who died so that we might live, and in the name of the Holy Spirit who gives us the power to do what we cannot do on our own. Amen.